We can turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 again. And after that hymn, I, it's probably a disappointment to hear my, ver, my voice. I mean, I, we sing How Firm a Foundation, and I am listening for J. Vernon McGee. I don't know, I don't know about you, but uh, I was in Texas. He was from Texas. I was in Texas last week. Uh, so I guess that's as close as we'll get uh, today to that. But the title of our message this morning is the faithful and true one. You know, this passage of Revelation 19 is describing to us the very climax of history. Uh, This is it. This is what every uh, thing, (laughs) every occurrence on this earth is leading to this incredible time when Jesus Christ will come again. I, it, struck me a few weeks ago, just kind of reading the news and some of the things that are going on in the world. I guess it was more like a couple months ago that this actually took place. But it, these uh, current events that are, that are happening around the world, uh, and every time something dramatic happens, to me, it is, a, it is at the very least a stepping stone or stage setting to what we see written in the Bible. There has never been an event that took place, that, and I thought, you know, the, kind of these big world events that took place, and I thought, ooh, boy, I don't know what God's going to do with that one. That seems to be contrary to uh, one world government or the nations uh, coming together in war against God. <laughs> we look at some of these things in Sunday school uh, in our opening time there, and the world is at war with God. Uh, and God is going to be the victor, just like uh, kind of like what we sang about this morning, faith is the victory. Uh, that probably would have been better suited for next week when we study these armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. Uh, so we were one week off uh, with our hymns as far as that goes. But at any rate, uh, today we are studying the one who is faithful and true, this one who is coming again to set things right in this world. You know, uh, as I've often said, the the Jesus that is portrayed in uh, modern media and in so much of Christendom is missing an aspect of his character. And when we do that, when we portray uh, a, a Jesus who isn't a complete picture, we run into problems. Then we are not presenting the Jesus of the Bible. People uh, will uh, sometimes in theological discussions try to uh, separate Jesus's humanity from his deity and talk about aspects of his humanity versus aspects of his deity. And you are, you are opening yourself up to a real problem when you engage in that kind of activity because when you study Jesus only as a human, you're not studying the Jesus of the Bible. When you study him as only God, you're not studying the Jesus of the Bible, who is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. 
the God-man is exactly that. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. And he has two aspects of what he's going to do on this earth. That is, he's going to come as our Savior to this earth, live a perfect life, and die on the cross for our sins. All true. He's also coming again in judgment. And we, we are not studying the Jesus of the Bible if we consider ourselves to only be uh, red-letter Christians, as it were, and we need to be about feeding the poor and clothing the poor and doing these kinds of things uh, that in and of themselves there's nothing wrong with, but that isn't the gospel. That isn't how we're saved. That wasn't the primary message of Jesus. And also, (laughs) the same people who do that tend to forget about the fact that he's coming again to wage war against this world. And so that's what we are studying this morning, this aspect of the Christ, that he is, in fact, coming again to this earth. And that that event is the very culmination of history, that he will come again and set the record straight and begin to transform the world into the way that it was originally created to be. That's why he is coming again. He's not coming again because he's mean and he, and he doesn't like the people who are against him. No, he's coming again to establish life on this earth the way it was designed to be, the way it was created to be, and it behooves us to get in line with the one who is the creator. That's, that's the Christian message. Uh, the testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy we studied about before. Both of these uh, aspects of Jesus Christ are very important. And so in this, as a reminder, again, we find ourselves discussing the things which will take place after these things. I spent some time this uh, past week in studying. We were actually, we stayed in a cabin uh, in Texas that didn't have any Wi-Fi. In fact, it didn't have cell service. You had to go outside and it had a tin roof. So what little... uh, what little service was available. You didn't get it inside. You had to go out and you literally had to stand in one corner of the little driveway that was there and wait a second. All right, I got a bar. Send a text real quick. (laughs) And and so in that time, I had a lot of time to read some things and I kind of wasted some time. (laughs) Actually, it wasn't a waste. But reading about some of the various uh, opinions from different scholars and different viewpoints about what this is talking about in the second coming. And not everybody agrees with us that Jesus is coming, literally coming again to the earth, let alone on the timing of this event. There are people who fall under the banner of Christendom who don't think he's literally coming to the earth again. There are some who say that he already did. He came and uh, 80, 70, he was in the clouds. You just couldn't see him, but he was there and he judged the world and carried out all the things that we're reading about in Revelation. It's absolutely crazy. It's laughable. Nobody nobody would think that about any other uh, piece of, of literature or any other thing that was written down. You would never in a million years spiritualize something to the extent that, oh, the IRS sent you a letter and says you owe $1,000 in taxes from last year and say, oh, well, <laughs> that's talking about my neighbor. Certainly that doesn't uh, apply to me. 
And when they say $1,000, they really mean that they owe me $1,000. Nobody would do that kind of thing with that. Why would we do it with God's Word? And so when we understand this book in its normal, literal, grammatical way that it's presented to us, we come to the conclusion that the main portion of this letter, chapter 6 through 19 and verse 21, is talking about the tribulation, a future time period where these events will literally take place. So there was a big earthquake in Syria and Turkey last week. That's not what's being talked about in the early uh, chapter 6 and, and so forth when it mentions an earthquake. It's not talking about that. Uh, these are future events. We know that it's in the future, like Paul said in Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, because the Antichrist isn't here. The Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit still working in this world? Yeah, he is. He works in my heart. He works in your heart. There's coming a time when he won't. The restrainer is going to be removed. We are going to be removed when that happens from this earth. And then the tribulation will come. So no matter uh, what's going on in your personal life or what we see in the news today, it isn't describing these events. And we know that because of two, a number of very important things that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2, the rapture and the fact that the Antichrist isn't here and the great apostasy hasn't happened. Uh, which is a whole nother issue that we won't get into today. But uh, we're talking about the tribulation and the second coming. This is Revelation 19, make no mistake, is the point in time when Jesus Christ will return to this earth. What day will that be? I don't know. Uh, it will be about exactly seven years after a covenant is confirmed between the nation of Israel and the Antichrist Seven years from that day, Jesus will come again. I don't know when that day is. Uh, last time, we spent some time looking at primarily Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened. And we compared when the, uh, this phrase, heaven opened, is used in the book of Revelation and what happens when heaven is opened. And we came to the conclusion that uh, the... Heaven opening in Revelation 4.1 is very different from the Reve Revelation 19.11 passage that mentions this. In fact, they're talking about two very distinct issues uh, or events that will take place. The rapture of the church is different than what we read here uh, about in Revelation 19. Very, very different uh, events. And uh, we spent some time going through all that. I summed it up with this statement. The rapture is a mysterious, motivating, imminent event wherein believers in the church will be rescued, resurrected, or changed instantaneously and caught up to meet Christ in the air and taken back to heaven. We uh, spent some time going over the various passages that, that teach this idea and then, and then we looked at this and compared what, it, what the rapture passages versus the second coming passages teach about these various events. The rapture is an event that takes place in the air. Christ comes in the air, catches us up to meet him in the air, and takes us back to the Father's house. 
The second coming, on the other hand, is very clearly is described on the earth here in Revelation 19, let alone all these other passages, Zechariah 14, Matthew 25, uh, and a number of other passages that literally speak of Christ being on the earth, not just in the air and going back to heaven. The rapture is a delivery for the righteous. That is something for those who are in Christ, according to 1 Thessalonians uh, 4. Those who have believed in Jesus, John 14, will be taken back to the Father's house at some point in history. That is for righteous people only. Those who have trusted in Christ will be caught up one day and taken to the Father's house. Uh, it doesn't mean that you only the superstar Christians are going to go and the rest of you kind of uh, disobedient uh, Christians will be left behind. No, that's a, a false teaching. Every believer will be either resurrected or caught up at that moment in time and taken to heaven. The second coming, on the other hand, very clearly is a judgment for the wicked. That's who we're seeing here, those who are at war against God. That is a theme that's repeated throughout the scriptures. He's coming to rescue us at the rapture from the wrath that is to come. Romans 5, 9, all through 1 Thessalonians. He's coming to rescue us from this wrath that is to come. We've seen very clearly that God's wrath is being poured out on the earth throughout the tribulation, let alone at this time in Revelation 19. He's coming to rule. On the other hand, in his second coming, he's coming to judge and wage war, according to Revelation 19, 11. You don't see anything like that in John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. No mention of judgment or war in any rapture passage. The coming again of Christ in the rapture is an imminent event. It is not preceded by signs. It could happen at any moment. Paul expected it in his life. That's why he says, we who are alive and remain will be taken up together with them to meet the Lord in the, in the clouds. Paul expected to be raptured. You ought to expect to be raptured. You ought to understand that Christ can come again for you at any moment and take you back to the Father's house and at that point in time, we will face the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before him in judgment, and he will uh, pass out rewards to us for our faithfulness in various areas of life. We don't have to expect uh, some sort of judgment like these people are undergoing. It's not going to be a time of punishment or, or anything along those lines, but there will be some loss of reward. The loss of reward is a very real potential, and that will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. But nobody is going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Christ deal out his judgment of you and your life, and off you go. Well, you just didn't measure up. You didn't measure up, so I'm sorry you have to go to a time of uh, purgatory, or you got to get the sins burned off of you, or you're just going to be punished, or you're going to be, you were so bad, you're cast out into outer darkness. That's not how it works for us as believers. We are trusting in Christ. He is the one who did it all for us. We're trusting in what he did. On that account, we have his righteousness transferred to us. So when we stand before Christ in judgment, 
We are seen as righteous. However, our lives are still very important to him and we will be rewarded based on what we've done for him in the power of the Spirit. The second coming, on the other hand, is preceded by signs. The rapture can happen at any time. This second coming is preceded by signs. We have spent literally the last, well, I guess I shouldn't say literally because I don't know the exact number, but it's probably around 50 around the last year, talking about the signs that lead to this event. It is absolutely preceded by signs. Jesus' Olivet Discourse, one of his longest discourses in the book of Matthew, is literally about the signs that precede his second coming. It is absolutely preceded by signs. Very different from the rapture. Uh, The rapture is a comfort, therefore comfort one another with these words. Paul ends the uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 passage. Uh, Do not let your heart be troubled, John 14, 1. I'm coming again for you, and I will take you back to the Father's house, is the message. That is a very comforting message. I don't know about you, but uh, as just as a person, and I'm a believer in Christ, Revelation 19 is not a comfort to me. That's not a passage that I just, oh, man, isn't that amazing that God is going to do this? That, I mean, it's, uh, it fills me with trepidation. That is a warning passage. I am coming again. I am coming to judge and to wage war. There's nothing wrong with being scared into believing in Christ. People have been doing that for an awful long time. We talked about Jonathan Edwards this morning and a real revival that he sparked when he gave the uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, People were scared into believing in Christ, and that's not a bad thing. We ought to be scared of the judgment that faces us as human beings if we do not trust in Christ. This is going to happen to you if you happen to live, if you're one of the 50% at most who makes it through the tribulation period alive to the end, uh, and you see Christ come again, there's a very good chance that you're an unbeliever and you will face this judgment. You will be cast into, you will die physically the the uh, false prophet and the beast are cast into the lake of fire. You get a thousand years to think about it before you are cast into the lake of fire as an unbeliever for eternity. Th- this is a warning passage, and we ought to heed the warning. That's why it's in our Bibles. So today, uh, we will spend some time looking at the faithful and true one. This is not a passage that we will make it through in one uh, sitting as we're already on number two, and uh, there's going to be a number three at least. Uh, and so we'll just look at three aspects of him, the faithful and true one who is coming again. We'll look at his appearance, his apparel, and his appellation. Appellation, that's kind of a stretch. It's a fancy name for name. Uh, a, a thesaurus is a great tool for alliteration. You just put the word in there. Hey, there's one that starts with an A. Awesome. Appalachian. Appearance, apparel, and appellation. We begin with his appearance. It's literally, he's going to appear again. People will be able to see him again. 
Revelation 19, 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Uh, we talked about this idea last time that John is an eyewitness to this, and I saw heaven opened. He's been doing this throughout Revelation. He does it throughout the book of John, the gospel of John, when he is describing the life of Christ, uh, that he is an eyewitness to this. His audience knew who he was. He was a trustworthy person as an apostle, of course, and so he appeals to that that he is an eyewitness to this. But notice that he also says, behold, here, and that is a command, and an, an imperative, and in fact, an aorist active imperative. So when we see that in the Greek, that aorist tense, that is a command that means do this, do it now. Uh, if it's a present active imperative, it's kind of more of a general sort of uh, idea like this is something that ought to be a part of your life every day and that kind of thing. An aorist imperative, on the other hand, is do it. Pay attention to this. There is an expectation of completion of the command. As I mentioned, this is the climax of history. This is the most important event of history that will take place uh, there, I would say there are three contending uh, events in history that are all right at the top for what's the most important one. The, the first one, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a pretty dramatic uh, event to take place. He created everything that is seen and unseen. Next, you would have uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ going and dying for our sins on the cross for not just our sins, but the sins of the entire world, an unimaginable, impactful event that we can't even comprehend the extent of that event and the immensity of it and everything that took place in the crucifixion of Christ, paying the penalty for the sins of the world. Uh, the resurrection would be pretty high up on there. I would put the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection all into one event. That's pretty, pretty earth-shattering event to take place. And this would be right up there with it. Jesus Christ coming again to judge and to make war on this earth in this world that has rejected him to make it right again. Uh, make the earth great again. <laughs> we could uh, have as our Wow, that would be uh, like mega. Oh, that's awesome. I think I just invented something there. Uh, <laughs> uh, Revelation 1.7, this is what the entire book is all about. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. This is a literal event that is going to take place if we try to spiritualize this into something, uh, oh, Jesus has already come again. He was in the clouds. You couldn't see him. Well, that, ah, <laughs> that contradicts exactly what is spoken here. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Uh, the world will see Christ come again. It, it, and in fact, it is the, uh, for the, for eternity, this is the event that will kick off 
eternity, if you will. Christ coming again to rule and reign on this earth. Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, there's that same word again. Hey, pay attention, listen to this. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." This is the event that kicks that off, Christ coming again, not just for a kingdom for the Jewish people and only them and everybody else is going to be their slaves. According to the Hebrew Bible, Daniel 7 and verse 13, uh, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. All people are welcome into this kingdom if they will only trust in the one who is the king, Jesus Christ. If you will just believe in him, you too can be included in this kingdom. So we ought to be paying attention to this event. Don't belittle it or spiritualize it into something else. This is the climactic event of history. And he's coming again on a white horse in this appearance. Some uh, will say that that the white horse that we saw back in Revelation 6 is uh, Jesus Christ. If you'll remember, Revelation 6-2, we saw a very different white horse come to the earth in the first seal judgment. That event that kicked off the tribulation, if you'll remember, begins with the seal judgments, the first seal judgment. And I saw the lamb uh, broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come, I looked and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Uh, We have seen throughout uh, Revelation, there are many instances in this book where Satan is trying to copy the things of the Lord. We saw, for example, the satanic trinity of the devil, uh, uh, the beast, and the false prophet, the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet kind of being a false satanic trinity in imitation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here, the entire tribulation breaks out with a false coming to the earth. And he's riding on a white horse, but he has a bow and a crown is given to him. Very different from this one that we see coming in Revelation 19, 11, and the implements of war that he uses. Uh, this, in Revelation 6, 2, is a description of the Antichrist, if you'll remember. He has a bow Uh, not a sword coming from his mouth as we see Christ here. Christ is not described with a bow in this instance. Uh, And and a crown was given to the Antichrist. This uh, Jesus Christ coming here, he possesses his crowns. They are his. And it's actually two different words for crown uh, there also. Uh, And 
we see this described, uh, this coming of the Antichrist described in Daniel 7, 7. Daniel says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. That's very different than Jesus Christ, uh, as we have seen uh, in what he's going to do. The, the Antichrist is the little horn who comes. And you'll remember from our study, there, the world is essentially divided into 10 different kingdoms, hence the, uh, the 10 horns here. And he is, uh, he takes down three of those and kind of asserts himself as being the one. He becomes the king. And his authority comes from someone very different than the God of the universe. It comes from Satan. Revelation 13, 4, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Well, the answer to that question, who is able to wage war uh, against him, is answered in Revelation 19.11. It is this one who is coming on the white horse. And he is called faithful and true. He is known by what he is. Uh, And I saw heaven open, Revelation 19.11, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and and true. Throughout our study of Revelation, we've seen that the, that the description of Satan and the Antichrist and his kingdom are kind of, they all go together. King and kingdom are so intimately entwined that you're, you're not sure if he's talking, are we talking about Satan? Are we talking about the Antichrist? Are we talking about this one world kingdom that's coming? They're all intertwined so closely together that you can kind of refer to them Uh, as they are known by what they do. It's known by what it is. The Antichrist kingdom and Satan are known by what they do. The same holds true for Jesus Christ. He is faithful and true because that's what he is. And these uh, attributes were brought out to the church in Laodicea. It's oftentimes uh, mistakenly said that the church in Laodicea represents the modern-day church. Uh, it doesn't represent anything. It is, it is a literal church that existed at that point in time in the first century when John wrote this uh, wonderful book. And part of that is a message to a church that existed. Now, do they have some things in common with us today? Indeed, they do. And Christ appeals in his message to the fact that he is faithful and that he is true. Revelation 3, 14, uh, John recorded Jesus's words and he said to the angel or pastor of the church in Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. He appeals to the fact that he is faithful and true And you, Laodicean church, church in America, church in the world today, you ought to align yourself with the things that 
uh, are of the Lord. In fact, a, a good place to start would be to be faithful and true. Recognize truth and be faithful to it. If we, you want to take a first step in uh, living for the Lord, there's a, a good place to begin. Being faithful to the Lord and faithful to the truth that is revealed to us. Jesus Christ is faithful. That, that is his nature. That is who he is. Isaiah 53, 9, speaking of the Messiah about seven year, 700 years before he came into the world, very clear uh, description of what he will do in his first coming, says Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah uh, prophesying that the Christ, when he comes, will be righteous. He's going to be perfectly faithful. There is no deceit that is found in his mouth. First uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter talks about this. In First Peter 2, verses 21 through 24, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Now, he, uh, we get into trouble sometimes if we just take one passage and, or one verse and build an entire theology over it. Some people will look at Christ and say, you know, there's a uh, president, as a matter of fact, is asked, oh, who's your favorite uh, teacher? Who's your favorite prophet? Oh, Jesus. Jesus is my favorite teacher. And they look at Jesus as a teacher. Some people will look to Jesus as just a, a model to follow in our lives. He died a martyr's death, and, and he was really nice. He said, said a lot of really great things and, and uh, about how we ought to live as human beings. And that's uh, just kind of as far as we take it. So don't take 1 Peter 2.21 and say that, oh, Jesus is just a model for us. That's not at all what Peter is saying. But he is a model for us to uh, live after. He absolutely is that, but he's that and so much more, as Peter is going to say. 1 Peter 2.22 speaking of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, quoting Isaiah 53. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. So yes, he is a he is an example for us to follow under persecution, uh, particularly Christian persecution. Uh, he, we entrust ourselves to the Lord, but Jesus goes beyond that. He himself bore our sins in his body, and so he's the one that we need to be trusting in. He was faithful in his first coming to the earth, and he is also true. He is, in fact, he, he is truth. It is even set. Uh, John 1, 14, or John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is true. He is full of truth. In fact, John uh, 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Somebody made an interesting remark in uh, in the uh, studies this week at the school, they said, well, you know, people always, all the time say there's only one way uh, to God. And th- that is true. There is one way to be accepted by God, and that is through faith in Christ. But all, la- all roads do lead to God eventually. And we're going to learn about that in Revelation chapter 20. All roads lead to God, but there's only one that gets you to spend eternity with him. Every person will stand before him in judgment. Those who have trusted in Christ will proceed into eternity. Those who have not will face a very different reality for eternity, separated from God because they have rejected truth, the truth. That is the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he is called faithful and true. And since he is faithful and true, we can trust in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's all about Christ. Salvation is from God, accomplished by God, completely about him, And we receive it by grace through faith. He graciously offers it to us, to all people, because the infinite, eternal God, the Son, second person of the Trinity, uh, became flesh. He was God, has always been God. He became flesh, came to this earth, became sin on our behalf. He transfers his righteousness to us when we trust in what he did. Heaven forbid we try to earn the righteousness of Christ. What a blasphemous thing to, to think that you can earn Christ's righteousness. You're so great, so good, you've been so perfect that, you can, that God will just let you in because your greatness has overcome your sin. Complete blasphemy. We receive righteousness based on the faith, trust in the faithful and true one. Next, notice his apparel. This says a lot about who he is as well. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His eyes are a flame of fire. He is the omnipotent judge and warrior, which is what is being described here in his eyes. They are all seeing. They are all penetrating. They, uh, wow, I don't know that there are words to describe the, the fear that will overcome people when Christ comes again and they see perfection. They see holiness. I think, I think people, uh, some people, it mentions the sword that comes out of his mouth. I think some people are literally going to die when they see him, when they see perfection coming before them. And part of that is described in these eyes 
that are a flame of fire. We've seen those before as well. Uh, Revelation 1.14, describing Christ, chapter 1 kind of sets the scene, lays the foundation for who's delivering this message, describes him in Revelation 1.14, Christ, his head and his hair are white, uh, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. He mentioned these eyes of fire in Revelation 2.18 as well in the message to the literal church, Thyatira, that existed in the first century that had some problems and needed correction, uh, that those corrections still apply to us today, of course. Uh, Revelation 2.18, And to the angel in the church in Thyatira, Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, he knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We like to deny a lot of our problems. Uh, that's, a, that's an issue that we have. We like to kind of hide our sin problems. We put on our smiley face and dress up to come to church and these kinds of things. Oh, how are you? Oh, everything's great. I'm good, man. Things, I it couldn't be any better. I'm perfect. We like to try to portray to the world. Uh, God sees right through that. He has eyes that are a flame of fire. He knows us. He knows who we are, and he knows what we need. And when he comes again, there isn't gonna, there's not going to be any hiding from his gaze. Uh, there isn't going to be any camouflage that will be able to uh, make it so that Jesus doesn't see you like you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why this came into my mind. But uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Alien and Predator or whatever, and they're uh, fighting and, and uh, Arnold is hiding from these aliens and he, he goes back into the uh, cliff of mud to hide himself from the, the view of the alien or Predator, whatever it was, I don't know. You're not going to be able to do that when Christ comes again. His eyes will, will see you uh, regardless of what you are trying to do to hide from him. And that's very similar to the way that we are today in this world. We can think that we can go back into our room in the dark and do whatever it is that we want to do. People typically commit sins in the dark that they don't want others to know about. Guess what? Jesus sees that. He knows that. He knows what you are doing. He sees us as we are, which is meant as a comfort to us as uh, believers, of course. He knows us as we are. As a believer, we've trusted in him. His righteousness is imputed to us, and we ought to be uh, living in a way that we ought to have an attitude of submission to him, and he sees that, and he helps us in our problems. That's the, the main role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is to comfort us, is to spur us on to faithfulness because Jesus has eyes that are a flame of fire and he can, he can see us just as we are. He will use them for a very different purpose in the second coming. On his head are many diadems, it says there uh, in verse 12. That's just a transliteration actually of the Greek term that is sometimes translated as crown. That's what it means. A diadem is a crown. That's literally the Greek term just put into to English uh, letters 
if you will. There's another term that is translated as crown Stephanos. Uh, Stephen, do we have any Stephens in here? I don't think we do. Uh, that's based on the Greek term Stephanos, that is crown, that is uh, oftentimes uh, describing like what a an Olympian would win back in the day, back in the Greek times, that they would give them a, a wreath uh, sort of crown. That's uh, Stephanos. That's what uh, the Antichrist actually has a Stephanos. Christ here has a diadem, a literal crown like a king wears is what's being described there. And that is an implication that his sovereignty is is unquestioned. It it is going to he has it. It's not uh, it's not given to him. He doesn't earn it. It's not he's not proving himself. He has it because of who he is as the second person of the Trinity. He is God, and of course that means he is uh, sovereign. It's contrary to the stolen authority of Satan that we see in Revelation uh, 12.3 describing the crowns that uh, Satan has, I believe is what the reference is there. Revel- uh, yeah, uh, Revelation 12.3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. This is the stolen uh, authority that Satan has had since the time in the garden when he deceived Eve, authority over the world transferred from Adam and Eve to Satan himself until Christ will come again and then he will be uh, the authority on this earth. That was given to the Antichrist in Revelation 13:2, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority as represented in the crowns. But Jesus Christ, when he comes again, is coming as a king. He did not come as a king. He came as a, as a lamb, if you will, the first time. He came as a, as a prophet, He is prophet, priest, and king. The first time he came, he's a prophet. He's currently our priest in heaven as the one who has literally paid the penalty for our sins. When he comes again, he's coming as king. Described in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 62, 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness, and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her. In your land, married, for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. So does Israel have a future with God? Of course they do. Their king is coming again. But as we have seen, all people will have access to uh, this kingdom through faith in Christ. That's why he died for the sins of the whole world. We are 
partakers in this kingdom that is to come, not overtakers. So this idea of sovereignty, obviously very misunderstood concept. Sovereignty, being sovereign does not mean that he has complete control over every one of our thoughts and our actions. If he did, uh, the church would be a lot better than it is (laughs) because we wouldn't be sinning if God had complete control over us. Sovereignty and sovereign does not mean total control. Total control is what despots do, like the USSR and the communist Chinese and these kinds of things. They try to have complete, absolute control over every thought, word, and action of their people. God isn't like that. Uh, Nazi Germany was like that. This former Soviet Union was like that. Uh, YouTube is like that. Uh, Twitter, these kinds of things, these kinds of institutions that try to control every thought and word and action. And unfortunately, our government is headed down the same road. Sovereign means that he is in charge. He is the ruler. And that's exactly what he's going to be when he comes again. Psalm 2, Revelation 19, uh, uh, and 15, 16. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He will be the sovereign. He will be the one in charge. But he rules with a rod of iron, indicating that he's going to have a rod of iron. And he's going to judge sin when it happens, even in the kingdom. There's going to be sin, but the judgment will be executed swiftly through Jesus Christ and his rod of iron. But he, make no mistake, he will be in charge. He will be ruling. He will be sovereign when he is there. The kingdom period is sort of a transition into the eternal state when there will literally be no sin. We will live in perfect harmony and fellowship with God forever. And notice that he, uh, another part of his apparel is that he has this robe dipped in blood. That's very reminiscent of uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 63 and verse 1. See, John isn't, John isn't writing, he's not really writing anything new for us here. He's just taking a lot of the Old Testament uh, that describes Christ, in fact, his first coming is described in the Hebrew Bible. That's a mistake we often make, saying, oh, I only talked about him in his second coming. No, that isn't true. I'll tell you why in a minute. But it, the Hebrew Bible very clearly uh, describes his second coming, Isaiah 63 being one of those. Did, did, does the Hebrew Bible reveal Jesus in his first coming? Oh, I hope so because the apostles spent a lot of time reasoning with people in the book of Acts from the scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Christ. They didn't have Matthew. They didn't have Revelation. They didn't have Ephesians and Romans or any of the New Testament when they're doing this. When it says they reasoned from the scriptures with the Jewish authorities about Jesus being the Christ, they mean the Old Testament. Perhaps we think that Jesus first coming isn't revealed in the Old Testament because we don't know our Old Testament well enough, like uh, Peter and Paul did. Nevertheless, second coming, very clear, Isaiah 63, who is the one who comes from Edom 
with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteous, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, God is saying, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Why does Jesus have a robe dipped in blood? Because he's coming to execute judgment upon this earth. This is not an indication that he died for the sins of the world uh, and that kind of thing. No, this is an indication that he is coming to wage war and judgment. He's coming to execute upon this earth, a concept that is very, very much uh, throughout the Old Testament, the second coming. He's coming again to execute judgment. Zephaniah 1.14, near is the great day of the Lord, nearing and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord in it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. He's coming again in judgment. And in fact, Zephaniah later says in 3.8, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. That's what we are seeing here. It fits perfectly. Why would, we, why would we try to spiritualize this event into not taking place when it is clearly, absolutely revealed in the Old and New Testament as being a literal event? He's coming to take back the earth. Lost in Adam, lost in Adam's sin. Why is there so much trouble in the world? Because Adam sinned and we are sinners just like him. And every single problem we have from a hangnail to cancer to bad relationships is the result of sin somehow. How does all of that work out? I'm not entirely sure. I'm not God. Nevertheless, he is coming to fix that problem. Lost in Adam, gained in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who is coming again to this earth. And real quickly, he has a name, his appellation. Uh, and we see that, that he's faithful and true is, is one of the things that he is called there in verse 11. Notice that he also has an unknown name. Verse 12, a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Oh, look at that. The page is even blank. I didn't do that on purpose but he has an unknown name. What is the unknown name? Here it comes. Uh, I'm about to reveal a secret to you. Exactly what it says. It's unknown. I don't know what it is. Revelation uh, 10, 4 
I think makes reference to that. Hopefully that's not a mistake while I was... uh, (laughs) No, I know why that's there. Because it's similar to... uh, We don't know everything about God. Praise the Lord for that. God is not a... God is not a an idol that we've carved with our hands and set on the shelf. And we know everything about it. I know everything about it because I made it myself. That's not who God is. We don't know everything about him. He even has a name that we don't know, similar to what happened to John earlier. John 10, 4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things uh, which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. I don't know what this name is. Will it be revealed to us later? Maybe. I'm not sure that I know, but there is one thing I do know. We can know his name today. In fact, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, Peter's incredible sermon that he delivered. Uh, That is the way, that is the only way that we can be saved is by faith in this name that we do know. A lot of people like to major on the minors, you know, get into this stuff. Oh, what is the name? Let's uh, make a code out of the Bible and we'll be able to figure it out. I would would compel you to not engage in that sort of thing. Uh, Some things God doesn't want us to know, and he has his reasons for not wanting us to know some things. And let's not get into speculation about the things that aren't revealed. That's when we do uh, get into trouble. So he has one name that is unknown. He also has a name that is, he has some names that are known here. He has uh, the name that he is called, on the wrong page now, uh, the Word of God. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. So let's talk about the things that we do know about him. He is the eternal God, the son. That's why he's referred to as the word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh. And so now John, this is a a great verse that, that ties uh, the book of John, the gospel of John, and the book of Revelation together as being from the same author. They're really, uh, these are the two books that describe Jesus as the Word and the Word of God, indicating to us that it is, in fact, the Apostle John who wrote this. He is faithful and true. We have seen that already in verse 11. He is, uh, it's revealed that he is faithful and true. Uh, We know that, that he is truth, and that we can be sanctified in the truth. God's word is the truth as well. Jesus, kind of like, uh, what's the Bible about? Well, uh, in large measure, it's about Jesus. He is the word, after all. He is the truth. The word is the truth also. It's the same kind of idea of Uh, King and kingdom being intimately tied together. The Bible and Jesus being intimately tied together. They actually have the same name, the word of God. And it's this word and only this word that can uh, sanctify us. And we don't do that ourselves. We have to have the word of God. Another problem with the Asbury revival, if they're not teaching the word, they're not being, you don't get sanctified by singing songs and 
sitting in and swaying back and forth. You get sanctified by submitting yourself to God's word. And it comes from the God who cannot lie. That's Titus 1, 2. His last uh, part of his appellation here, or his name that is revealed to us, is that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. In verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The reason why this is brought out is because of the book of Daniel, where these concepts were really first revealed in large measure. Uh, That's why Daniel and Revelation are oftentimes studied together. They go hand in hand. Daniel is the framework. Revelation is the, the siding and the drywall and the lighting and the roof and everything that that makes a house pretty. We get a lot more of the picture of the end times from the book of Revelation. Daniel is definitely the framework. And the framework of Jesus Christ coming as King of kings and Lord of lords to rule over this earth is laid in Daniel 2 in a dream revealed to, or that Nebuchadnezzar had that was revealed to Daniel supernaturally from the Holy Spirit showing that there's essentially going to be four great kingdoms and then a stone cut without human hands will come into this world and crush the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw and fill the entire world with its kingdom. That's what we are studying about here. We are studying about the stone cut without human hands uh, coming into this world, crushing the world system and being established as the kingdom over this earth. So again, to see this uh, chart, Revelation 19 is very, very different from our rapture passages. We're not seeing the rapture here. This isn't uh, a spiritual event, but this is a literal event that will take place with very real, real spiritual implications But make no mistake, it's a literal event that will happen one day in human history on this earth when Jesus Christ, the faithful and true one, uh, makes his final appearance into this world. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood with eyes that are a flame of fire that can see everything. He has a crown. He's sovereign and will rule over this earth. He's coming in judgment and he has several names, not just one name, but he has several. He's faithful and true. He has an unknown name that that we don't know, may know in the future. He's known as the Word of God, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation that reveals your future plans for this world. But even within uh, future plans for this world, we still uh, somehow have a convicting message about who we are and our position before you. I thank you that in your grace, you have offered salvation to us through faith in Jesus Christ, the faithful and true one who in his first coming came into this world to live a perfect life and die for our sins. I thank you that we can have salvation by simply trusting in what he did on our behalf. 
I also thank you that you are coming again uh, to this earth to rule and to reign over this earth and that your enemies will be eradicated from it. While we uh, may not be facing direct persecution in our lives today, the Bible tells us that if we are seeking to be godly in this world, we will face persecution. It's becoming more and more evident in America today as we live. And I just pray that we would be encouraged knowing that you are victorious in the end, that you will eradicate the enemies of God from this earth and we will begin to experience life as you want it to be. I just thank you for that. And I pray that we would all be on the right side of that judgment, that you are coming again in judgment and may we have our faith and our trust in you so that we do not face what the unbelievers will face. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your long-suffering nature. And I just pray that we would, as believers, be motivated to live for you because of these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.